Japan takes a progressive step forward as the Supreme Court declares a previous law regarding the sterilization of transgender people unconstitutional. This ruling has sparked conversations about Japan's attitudes towards the LGBTQ plus community on a whole and the legislation surrounding them. As an influential country in the region, many wonder what this change in attitude can mean for other laws within states of the area. This brings us to the questions of how we got here and where we may be heading next. From Seton Hall University, this is The Global Current. I'm your host, Trisha Ballion. With me today are two fellow Seton Hall students. Covering the domestic situation today is our analyst, Aaron M. Hi, Aaron. Hey, Trish. How are you? Good. How are you? And focusing on the international aspect today is Iman Fatima. Hi, Iman. Hello. All right. So before we get too deep into conversation, I want to turn to you, Aaron, and just ask about some background information to get us contextualized with this whole conversation. So what was the previous ruling on laws regarding transgender people that we're looking at today? So on October 25th, Japan's Supreme Court ruled that requiring transgender people to undergo sterilization to change their gender identity was considered unconstitutional and it was a unanimous decision made by the court. This is considered a step forward for LGBTQ rights in a nation that is slow to make changes. Previously, Japan required transgender people to undergo sterilization and this was considered a big setback for the LGBTQ community. Japan Alliance for LGBTQ Legislation Secretary General Yuchi Kamiya said that the decision will change the lives of so many trans people in Japan. However, despite the progress with the, this decision, there is still a long journey to achieve full rights for LGBTQ community in Japan. The Japanese court is still did not rule on a separate requirement that transgender people must undergo transition surgery to legally change their gender they identify with. So I know you just mentioned one of the obstacles that's still in place for trans people in Japan. Do you know about any, any other ones we need to be looking at? Um, so far, Japan has still not legalized uh, same-sex marriage. And while the West and Europe um, North America have all legalized same-sex marriage. Japan is probably the, one of the only developed countries that still has not. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. And so this kind of leads me into asking, what is the general stance towards the LGBTQ plus community within Japan? So in terms of polls, Pew Research Center said that 75% of Japanese either fully were fully in favor or somewhat in favor of same-sex marriage. And this is higher than other Asian countries such as South Korea, India, and Indonesia. Gotcha. And so is I know you mentioned that same-sex marriage is not legalized. Is there any sort of recognition um, that we see in Japan for that? So in terms of different laws they have, uh, there has been some progress made by introducing same-sex marriage partnership certificates to same-sex couples. However, they're not legally binding. So many municipalities have introduced the partnerships certificate like Tokyo and Osaka. However, many say this is still not enough. And there's been a growing amount of young people in Japan pressuring the court to legalize same-sex unions and eventually marriage. Thank you for that background information. And before we get further into the conversation about the law at hand here, I wanted to ask you again, Aaron, about uh, the history of attitudes within Japan. So what does Japan's political history look like? So ever since the 1950s after World War II, Japan has been mostly a conservative nation. Japan has been ruled for most of its time after World War II by one singular party, which is called the Liberal Democratic Party or LDP and all for except two terms 
uh, in office, the LDP has been ruling over the country. LDP, in terms of political and social issues, they tend to lean more to the right and, and have more conservative views. So the party overall supports friendlier environments for businesses, the lowering of taxes, and supporting Japan's economy helped with government funding and protectionist trade policies. However, because this party is so big, there has been different factions within the party. So there are some within the party that are considered more conservative and nationalist, and others that tend to be more liberal and progressive. And there are some LDP members like Taro Kono who openly supports the legalization of same-sex marriage. He said that constitutional issues must be sorted out to allow same-sex couples to be married legally. And Japan has made plans to put out anti-discriminatory laws against the LGBTQ community before both the Tokyo Olympics and the G7 summit, but have failed to do so until June of 2023. Uh, this is because of the conservative LDP lawmakers pushing back on this law. Gotcha. And so I guess that kind of goes back into what you were saying earlier about Japan being one of the only highly developed nations that doesn't recognize or legalize same-sex unions and um, laws regarding transgender people as well. That's correct. Yeah. So what is the history behind the sterilization law we're looking at specifically regarding trans people? If you could just give us some background about that. What does it mean? What are we looking at here? So Japan has had a long history of not changing this law even though it's been talked time and time again, this law has been unchanged since 2004. Before 2023, transgender people had to appeal to a family court under the GID Act or the Gender Identity Disorder Act. They also had some requirements, including being single and not having children under 18. They then had to go through a series of tests, then receive a diagnosis of gender identity disorder, which then they were then sterilized. Many times, transgender people become unreproductive after the sterilization. And the reason why Japan did this practice was because for a long time, the country saw gender identity and the idea of transgender people as a mental illness. Kanae Doi said the law is based on an outdated premise that treats gender identity as so-called mental illness and it should be urgently revised. And many people consider this practice to be demoralizing, harmful, and an expensive process. Gotcha. And so are there any other laws targeting trans people we need to be looking at? Overall, it seems that there's only been uh, anti-discrimination laws in place for all LGBTQ members in the Japanese society. However, it does seem that uh, laws uh, will continue to change as the Japanese people continue to think more progressively and think of ways that they can move forward with this. Gotcha. Thank you for that really um, in-depth history regarding both Japan's political parties on a whole and kind of all the reasoning behind the law we're looking at. And so I want to turn to you, Iman, and talk a little bit about the historical impact of colonialism um, in this region. I mean, I know that colonialism has a really big impact when it comes to long-lasting attitudes within countries. And so can you tell us how has historical colonialism impacted Asia and their laws? Of course, the impact of colonialism in Asia is a crucial factor to consider Western powers once colonized many Asian countries and the influence of colonial era laws and attitudes can still be seen today. Colonial powers often impose their own social and moral values, 
which may have contributed to conservative views on sexuality in some regions. Asia is incredibly diverse in terms of cultures, religions, and traditions. The level of acceptance of LGBTQ plus individuals can vary significantly based on these factors. Some Asian societies have long histories of tolerance and acceptance, while others have more traditional or conservative views influenced by religious beliefs. To believe that homosexuality is a Western behavior is Orientalist. Brian Wong talks about this in his article in Times. He argues that a common argument in Asia that homosexuality is perceived as a Western behavior has been superimposed on Eastern cultures due to globalization. The view is often linked to concerns about the influence of Western values on traditional Asian values. It suggests that there is resistance to accepting LGBTQ plus rights as they are seen as foreign or decadent. On the one hand, globalization has led to positive developments such as legal reforms and increased activism, bringing greater visibility to LGBTQ plus issues. These developments have been especially notable in countries like India, where the de decriminalization of homosexuality followed a landmark Supreme Court ruling, partly influenced by global human rights discourse. Global communication and collaboration have allowed local LGBTQ plus movements to connect with activists worldwide, increasing visibility and advocacy. However, the process of globalization has also triggered a backlash driven by deeply cultural and religious values in Asia, where traditional values on sexuality and gender roles often clash with Western-derived LGBTQ plus values. This has resulted in social tensions, political backlash from leaders seeking to appeal to conservative voter bases, and the perpetuation of misconception and stereotypes hindering the broader understanding and acceptance of LGBTQ plus individuals. So we're definitely looking at a, a lot of contention about whether or not this globalization is a positive or a negative thing. So is there significance, I know we talked about this earlier with the economic development of a country, is, it, is there significance in that development and its relation to opening these laws? Oh yeah, for sure. Economic factors can also play a role. As countries become more economically developed, they tend to experience social and cultural changes. That's why wealthier nations may be more open to accepting LGBTQ plus rights as seen in the examples of Japan and South Korea. To further support this point, wealthier countries tend to have better education. Education and public opinion can drive at attitudes toward LGBTQ plus individuals to evolve as people become more informed and empathetic. Also, people in a country that has better access to education can understand the root connection of colonialism and the prevalent homophobia and transphobia. Thank you. And so what is the relationship between the attitudes of homophobia and homosexuality in Japan and its colonial history? I know you mentioned homosexuality is a Western idea is, you know, very much false. And so what else can we see with that relation? So Mary Yamamoto has done her research on this. Uh, she's a junior in, in the Honors College at Stony Brook University. Her research goes into depth of Japan's historical stances on sexuality and argues that colonialist ideas have influenced Japan's outward lack of compassion towards LGBTQ plus individuals. It suggests that Japan, like many other countries, faced pressure to conform to Western values during the Meiji era, which may have contributed to the suppression of LGBTQ plus rights. It is usually argued that religions in Asia play a significant role in LGBTQ plus rights. 
However, the role of religion, notably the Judeo-Christian ideas regarding sexual shame, has had a significant impact on suppressing open expressions of the same relationships in Japan. This contrasts the relatively more neutral stance observed in the native belief systems of Shintoism and Japanese Buddhism. Her research also encourages re-evaluation of knowledge and understanding from an epistemological perspective and it calls upon Japanese leaders to make measures to foster a more inclusive society. This includes ad addressing the historical factors that have contributed to the formation of Japan's perspectives on LGBTQ plus individuals. Gotcha, that definitely helps contextualize what we're looking at in terms of the historical impact of not only within Japan, but in Asia as a whole with colonialism. And so now that we have that important contextualization, I want to turn back to you, Aaron, and ask more about the specific changes of laws that we're seeing today. And so what other laws have been adopted in Japan relating to the treatment of the LGBTQ plus community? So Japan has recently been adopting laws that criminalize LGBT discrimination within the country. So for example, in June of 2023, Japan passed the country's first law that addresses anti-LGBTQ discrimination. Following months of pressure by governments to provide legal protections for sexual minorities, the law states that discriminalization towards sexual minorities would not be tolerated. However, the law does not push for any punishment for decriminalization against sexual minorities. So with that, I guess, lack of punishment repercussion, how are they going to enforce these rulings? So far, there hasn't been any kind of punishment. So, but what they want to do is to encourage people to accept people who are of LGBTQ. So for example, the law states that efforts should be made by national and local governments, employers, and educational institutions to promote diversity with regards to sexuality and gender identity. Schools and workplaces will be encouraged to provide resources and services to raise awareness of these issues. However, one problem they have with the terms discrimination is too narrow and that it lacks any kind of structure in terms of punishment. I see that definitely poses a problem there when you're looking at it, you know, just legally and having to have that nuance there. Right. How does the population of Japan reflect ideas about the LGBTQ plus community? Is it in line with what we see with the political parties? Is it different? Give us some ideas about that. In terms of political ideology, the Japanese people think that this is a right step forward with the um, LGBTQ community. Well, with the political parties, again, the LDP rules Japan and tends to lean more on the conservative side. However, throughout the years, they've made more attempts to accept LGBTQ rights and hopefully in the future will accept and legalize same-sex marriage. And this will consider to be a huge step forward for LGBTQ rights in not only in Asia, but the world too. Mm -hmm. And so I guess you can say there's definitely a little bit of contention there between the population and the ruling political party in terms of the population tends to view it more liberally in the sense of this is good progress as opposed right. to... Uh, well, Japan's population, almost three quarters of the population supports the legalization of same-sex marriage. And again, this is higher than most mm -hmm. other Asian countries such as South Korea, which is only 40%, and India, which is around half, and Indonesia, which is majority Muslim country, it only has 5%. Gotcha. It's very interesting to look at the statistics around the area of Asia. I'm sure we'll get back to that here in a little bit. So a little another question for you. What have been the attitudes of Japanese politicians specifically towards the issues of the LGBTQ plus community? So 
in terms of attitudes by politicians, I say they have made quite a bit of progress in the recent years. For example, Fumio Kishida, who's the current prime minister of Japan, he is the one who introduced these new laws that punishes discrimination towards LGBTQ people. And also, he recently fired one of his cabinet members for anti-LGBTQ remarks. So I feel like the Japanese prime minister seems to be moving forward with this issue and hopefully they will be able to resolve these LGBTQ issues in the future as well. Mm -hmm. Could you say that maybe their actions don't quite line up with the promises of reform? I know there's definitely been talk of reform, yet it seems that the actual laws don't keep up. Right. I feel like the Japanese people do expect more from their prime minister mm -hmm. because, again, majority of the Japanese population supports LGBTQ and same-sex marriage legalization. But the Japanese Prime Minister wants to make sure that they have a good balance between mm -hmm. accepting LGBTQ rights and also not going against their policy of being more of a conservative party as well. Gotcha. And I want to turn back to you, Iman, and kind of follow back up on the different attitudes within Asia regarding the LGBTQ plus community. So could you shed some light on that for us? Yeah, of course. A lot of people also are not aware that there are queer figures in some of these religions in Asia, the ones that we previously mentioned. There were also surprisingly a lot of multiple queer poetries and stories written during Mughal Empire in the Indian subcontinent. Usually Pakistan and India are never included when it comes to the LGBTQ plus Asian discourse, so it is important to analyze the legacy of British colonial role in India and its impact on the LGBTQ plus community, especially focusing on hijras. In the Indian subcontinent, hijras are intersex people or transgender people who live in communities that follow a kinship system known as Guru Chela system. They are also known as Arowani and Jogopa. In Pakistan, they are known as Kawahaja Sira, the equivalent of transgender in the Urdu language. So going back to other countries in uh, Asia, only Taiwan and Nepal allow same-sex unions in Asia where largely conservative values will still dominant politics and society. Some countries, however, have recently taken inclusive steps, including India, where the Supreme Court is debating whether to allow same-sex marriage in the world's most populous nation. South Korea, where lawmakers proposed a same-sex marriage bill in May, and Singapore, which last year scrapped a British colonial era law criminalizing sex between men. So what do we know about like gender affirmation in terms of these countries? I know we've been talking a lot about bills regarding the transgender population. So how does that reflect in other Asian countries? While some aspects of LGBTQ plus rights in Asia may be influ influenced by historical factors, including colonialism, the status of LGBTQ plus right is far from the uniform across the region. It is shaped by a complex interplay of cultural, legal, and political influences, with some countries demonstrating progress and in inclusivity, while others continue to hold on to conservative values and legal restrictions. This also suggests the legacy of colonialism continues to affect LGBTQ plus rights in some Asian countries with the removal of such laws representing progress towards greater inclusivity and recognition of LGBTQ plus individuals. 
So going back to what we talked about, hijras in the Indian subcontinent, especially in uh, India and Pakistan, one of the Section 377 of the Indian Penal Code introduced during British colonial rule in 1864 criminalized non-procreative sexualities and had serious implications for groups like hijras. Law was used to assert colonial authority and control over perceived deviant groups. Hijras were traditionally influential figures in Indian history involved in collecting taxes and duties in the Sultanate and Mughal courts. However, the implementation of se Section 377 had a significant impact on their status and way of life. While the IPC Section 377 was removed in 2018, the legacy of colonial role persists, and there are concerns about the Transgender Bill of 2016, which has faced criticism and has not yet been passed in the Upper House of Parliament. The colonial state enforce the medicalization of non-heteronormative behaviors, pathologizing them as deviant. The process involved forensic medical science to link non-normative sexuality to criminal acts and it contributed to the stigmatization of hijras today. Gotcha. And so I guess it's really safe to say that a lot of these attitudes that we see throughout the Asian region come from the impacts of colonialism and how those Western pressures to conform and things like that have really hindered the progress within those nations in terms of um, accepting and legalizing things how to do with gender affirmation, same-sex unions, all that sort of stuff. That's a really interesting perspective to take on it because I don't think a lot of people really realize that pre-colonialism, a lot of this, like you were mentioning, queer figures have always been in a lot of these different religions around the region. So it's really important to note that colonialism definitely shifted that really greatly, you would say. Yeah, yeah for sure. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this has been a really great discussion so far. I just want to wrap up with a couple of Final thoughts. So turn to you, Aaron. Is this the first step in future progress towards openness of laws regarding the LGBTQ plus community in Japan? Or do you think this is more of a one-time occurrence? I definitely think this will be a first step for future progress towards the openness of laws regarding the LGBTQ community in Japan. This is because, as we see, Japan's government and its prime minister has made many steps into accepting the LGBTQ community and I think this will be going on forward in the future and hopefully this will be a huge step and the Japanese public will then be able to legally marry people of the same gender. Mm -hmm. Gotcha and so this will definitely be, do you think it'll still be a point of contention within the LDP as far as we can tell? I don't Definitely. Yeah. I think the LDP is still pretty conservative. Mm -hmm. However, they are making different steps towards accepting the LGBTQ community. And as Japan's population continues to be, think more progressively, the LDP will definitely become more pressured into accepting these rights. Gotcha. And so turning to you, Iman, I wanted to ask, will this step um, taken by Japan ripple out into other Asian countries and impact their legislation regarding LGBTQ plus issues? The impact of Japan's steps in addressing LGBTQ plus issues may indeed have a ripple effect on other Asian countries, but it is essential to consider the broader context. The historical legacy of colonialism has had a profound influence on Asian countries, shaping their attitudes and laws regarding of the LGBTQ plus community. There's also something that I would like to point out. When a country is colonized, a lot of times they stick to their traditional values harder because there's so much trauma response that they're already dealing with. So to just give away their uh, traditional values, it would seem for them that they have given a part of their culture 
So it is a part of a trauma response. While some countries have more conservative uh, views influenced by colonial era values, while others have been more open to change, particularly when they experience economic development and better access to education. For instance, Japan's a great example, which has relatively progressive stance on LGBTQ plus issues that can be attributed in part to its economic development and better access to education. It has shown that wealthier countries tend to be more accepting of LGBTQ plus rights. However, it is crucial to recognize that not all Asian countries share the same level of economic development or access to education, which can impact their approach to LGBTQ plus issues. And kind of following up on your response there, so do you think that once more Asian countries in the region um, reach the level of development of Japan or somewhat closer to it, do you think that they'll open up in the same way and kind of go back to some of those traditional views? I think it depends because some countries in Asia have been directly affected by colonialism while some have been impacted by colonialism indirectly. So it really depends. And also change takes a lot of time, uh, especially when it comes to access of knowledge, access, access of education. It is different for every country. So to make a general statement for the whole Asian continent would be not fair because Asia is such a diverse continent with so many different cultures and that is why I brought Pakistan and India because a lot of times people uh, don't bring India and Pakistan into when it comes to Asian discourse. Mm -hmm, gotcha. I know that area of Southeast Asia is definitely neglected in a lot of um, academic discussions surrounding it. So thank mm -hmm. you for bringing that up. So this has been a really great discussion, both of you. Um, Aaron, Aman, thank you so much for coming on and joining us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Joining me now to run up some other headlines this week is our news briefer, Megan Pitt. Hey, Megan. Hi. So what headlines do you have for us this week? We have six dead in Tuscany after excessive flooding. An earthquake in Nepal kills more than 100. The U.S. Senate approves first woman to lead the Navy. New Delhi closes schools to reduce pollution. Lots of interesting stories to cover today. Let's start with the impacts of the flooding in Tuscany. Storm Kieran brought massive flooding to central Italy, leaving six dead in Tuscany. President of the area, Eugenio Gianni, reported that eight inches of rain had fallen in three hours, an oddity for the region. Wind gusts reached more than 70 miles per hour. Flooding in homes and vehicles was severe, and photos of damaged cars and hospitals surfaced online. The storm has brought death and destruction to other European nations, such as the Netherlands, Belgium, France, Spain, and Germany. A very devastating event with unprecedented impact. And the earthquake in Nepal? On Friday, November 3rd, an earthquake struck remote western Nepal and killed more than 100 people. The earthquake had a magnitude of 5.6 and was reported by the U.S. Geological Survey to be a shallow earthquake, meaning it occurred close to the Earth's surface. Photos and videos online have shown collapsed homes and survivors being pulled from the rubble of crumbled buildings. Search and rescue teams have faced difficulty with closed roads caused by quake-related landslides. Tremors could be felt in the Nepalese capital and in nearby India. That's quite the crisis. Our hearts go out to everyone affected. Tell me more about the Senate decision. In a 95-1 to 1 Senate vote, Admiral Lisa Franchetti was approved to lead the U.S. Navy, becoming the first woman to serve on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Franchetti is also the first woman to head a Pentagon military branch. Previously, she has served as the head of the U.S. 6th Fleet and Naval Forces in South Korea. She also worked as an aircraft carrier strike commander. Quite the progressive step. And our last story? In an attempt to reduce smog and air pollution in New Delhi, the nation's government banned harmful vehicles in construction and closed primary schools on Friday, November 3rd. Citizens were advised to wear face masks, and the nation installed water sprinklers and anti-smog guns. 
Historically, people have reported severe headaches and illness as a result of the poor air quality, which is 10 times the global safety threshold. Lung specialists have attributed blood pressure issues and diabetes to the pollution as well. Thank you very much for coming on, Megan. That is all the time we have for today. Be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram and LinkedIn for updates on our upcoming shows. The show would not have been possible without our dedicated crew, executive producer, Bobby Kyle, associate producers, Kasia Kostraba and Juliana Mori, technical producers, Ashley Skladani and Emilia Vensachinsky, and of course, your host, Trisha Ballion. The Global Current is brought to you by Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU. Until next time, thanks, y'all.